Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, more calls for a judicial review on the Red Hill Valley Parkway report. A joint statement issued yesterday from advocates and leaders of various organizations regarding the leaked health omnibus bill, arguing that the bill will create what they call a health care crisis. Also, Prime Minister Trudeau is trying to distance himself from the allegations of improper pressure on Jody Wilson-Raybould. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. To start with, let's uh, get back to what's happening here in Hamilton uh, with, the, uh, of course, the Red Hill fiasco that's going on. I, obviously, you need to know no more about the story than you already do. That There was a report that was withheld by somebody on city staff about six years ago, and it had to do with the safety of the Red Hill Valley Expressway. Uh, there have been deaths on that road. Uh, counselor were not, counselors rather, were not told about this. Uh, and now there's a hue and cry uh, to, well, get some answers on this. The initial response from city council was to have their auditor general uh, look into this. Uh, I disagreed with that, and I think many other people in the community disagreed with that and said that you can't have th- that somebody in the city doing this. It, for the sake of, of an, an unbiased opinion, you need outside eyes on this. Well, the next step, of course, is a judicial review, and we talked with Councillor Brad Clark about that. Laura Babcock from Power Group is on here also advocating for that. And uh, a number of other people are jumping on side with that idea. Is it the best way to go? Let's bring John Best into the conversation, publisher of the Bay Observer, as he joins us here on the Bill Keller Show on CHML. Good morning on this snowy day, John. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, Bill. Thank you. Good. Uh, listen, let's get into to what we need to do going forward here. And, and, and what I want to try to do here is I understand the anger and the angst about this. I, I, I understand it totally. I mean, not just for the families that have had uh, fatalities in this, but for everybody who's wondering what's going on here in the interest of transparency. It, it, it's, it's getting a little crazy on social media with some of the accusations that are being made and, and some of the suggestions. So let's see if we can sift through that and, and, and maybe get some pragmatic answers as to where we need to go here. What, what are your thoughts on this, as, as you see a little more has developed over the last few days? Well, uh, I spent some time yesterday um, watching uh, the tape, uh, and thank goodness that uh, City Hall has these archived mm-hmm. tapes of meetings. So I was able to sit and watch a, a two-hour tape of um, a, a public works committee meeting that took place in December of 2015. And uh, the main topic at that meeting was Red Hill Valley Parkway safety. And they were, uh, they were given a presentation by CIMA, I guess is the name of the organization. That's the engineering firm uh, that has been looking into this. Um, so the, the date is December 2015. So they would not have seen uh, the report from two years earlier that talked uh, explicitly about the friction issues. So it's just kind of a generalized uh, look at um, uh, there was an analysis of the various accidents that had taken place, and uh, and then there were some staff recommendations. Uh, but watching the tape and listening to the discussion around the table, it, it was clear that, that, that the councillors had absolutely no sense whatsoever of friction issues. I, John, I watched that too, and I... And I, I, I would characterize this as almost a benign discussion. I mean, they were concerned about the fatalities, obviously, but there seemed to be this, this mindset that, well, you know, we've already got data from staff and, and there's nothing wrong with the road. So, uh, but, and, you know, the course, as you mentioned, that report was not in front of their eyes. No, and, and most of the discussion, I'd say the majority of the discussion was still centered on enforcement. In other words, we still think the main problem is speeding. 
uh, reckless driving, and so they, they even had uh, two members of the Hamilton Police Services there answering questions. Uh, there was some discussion about cat size. Um, the, the only preventative sort of discussion of any substance that I heard uh, was uh, actually Councillor Collins, who, who got quite insistent that staff provide him with a report on the cost of lighting the highway, which uh, lighting is certainly one of the issues that people talked about. Mm-hmm. But other than that, they, they were all over the place talking about rum, rumble strips, uh, better signage. Um, and, and then if you actually look at the reports that, that they were discussing, there are two reports, uh, one dealing strictly with the, the issue of crossing the median, and then the other report was a more detailed analysis of the safety on the highway. I think there was one paragraph uh, devoted to the issue of friction, and uh, they, they sort of noted that there may be some friction issues, uh, but they didn't uh, really make any recommendations. And, and even when you look at the staff, what staff was recommending to council, there was, a, a, there was a, an appendix A, if you will, that here's some things that we need to do right away, uh, and the further friction testing was recommended, but that wasn't until uh, on a second list that w- would be stuff that would be done within two to three years. So it, it didn't seem like anybody, including staff, um, saw the friction issue as an urgent issue at that point, notwithstanding the fact that they did have that report from two years earlier that, that did raise a red flag. Yeah, except the question that a lot of people are asking, John, is who had that report? Well, we don't know that, and I'm I'm not going to speculate at all on that at this point because I think that's a very very serious issue, and 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 that's probably the reason to go back to your preamble why why we really need a a completely independent analysis of what happened here. As I say, I watched a, a good deal of that discussion from that tape as well, John. How I'm going to ask you to speculate just for a second here. How do you think that tone of that conversation would have changed if council been aware of that report that uh, that obviously had not been presented to them? Well, I'm not sure um, exactly because uh, you know it would still be presented by staff to council, and um, so there would still be uh, an interpretation placed on it uh, by whoever was presenting it to council. And uh, I guess it would depend on how many counselors read the staff recommendation, which is the first four or five pages on these decks, and how many dig into the original material. I mean, it's pretty clear to me that staff did not see urgency on the um, uh, on this issue. Uh, they 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 did talk about spending forty thousand dollars to do some some further friction testing, but it was admitted at that meeting. Actually, that 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 meeting that we're discussing. Uh, there was a mention by staff that they had done friction testing, but that it was just mentioned in passing and nobody picked up on it. So who knows? Um, it, you know, at the end of the day, you rely on staff, and if they're not flagging it as an urgent issue, it's possible that it might not have changed the outcome of that meeting. Well, except that uh, that's in the eye of the beholder, obviously. Sure. I, I, and, and again, you're right. I don't want to go down that road of saying, well, this is what they probably thought they were doing. Because uh, that's for whatever review is going to be happening here is to, for them to determine. I don't want to go down that road. Uh, so many other people seem to have already, and they're pointing fingers at councillors right now and former mayors and everybody else. And it's it's really becoming a, 
well, a kind of a, a circus here about you know throwing our speculations and with the absence of fact, I guess that's going to happen. But I think we need to keep a, a cool head about this. But you know, did staff not mention this as much of a big deal about the 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 friction issue because they didn't see that report either? I mean, we don't know at this stage who saw that, who has not seen that report. Uh, we know for a fact that counselors didn't see that report, which is why it would be a, a rather benign discussion for them, too, because uh, according to what they were being told, especially some of the questioning by Councillor Marula at that meeting, uh, they were reassured once again that that road was either meeting or above standard for, you know, when it came to the composition of the road itself. And in the absence of any other information, that's all staff, uh, this counselors actually can rely on. Well, at one point in the meeting, staff actually told, I, th- I don't know whether it was Marula or who, who was the questioner, but they actually said that the, the pavement um, exceeded uh, uh, provincial standards. Uh, but, you know, I, I guess the question is what, what sort of standards? There, there was a, a bunch of interesting stuff that came out of the meeting, though, and uh, we have to go back to uh, the controversy over building the highway in the first place and uh, all the stakeholder groups that, that were, uh, had to be satisfied. Uh, for instance, the reason for no lighting, it was suggested, was uh, that was part of the agreement they made with the Aboriginal groups, uh, and it was to deal with the issue of light pollution uh, in a natural valley. And, and so it wasn't just a cost reason. There was a, there was, uh, there was a stakeholder reason why the lighting uh, was so poor on, on that highway. So you know, it, but the, the the whole tone of the meeting as 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 you they had all this information in front of them. They did not have that one little report that that would have possibly made a difference. But it was you know most I, my sense of the meeting, uh, just listening to everyone, uh, was that they generally thought that the major problem was speeding and careless driving. And and I don't disagree that that's a factor, but no, we also it, don't it know it is. It, 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 and and we that this that meeting that that we saw in video, John, was not the only discussion they've had about the Red Hill over the last number of years. So I asked Council Marula when I had him on the program the other day, had you seen this report, how would Council have reacted? He said, well, we would have fixed the stuff right away. There's a recommendation right there that says it should be addressed immediately. He said, we would have done that. Now, I don't know what that would have done as far as fatalities or collisions on that piece of road, but it would have addressed what that consultant's report said was a failing in that road. And, of course, you can't fix something that you don't know anything about. Well, uh, one interpretation you could put on this is that is that staff saw the friction report, realized that there may be uh, uh, quite a serious problem, uh, and and of course we know that the the repaving of the road was bumped up by a couple of years. Um, I haven't uh, gone into that report yet, but it certainly wasn't presented to council as an urgent, immediate need. It was uh, it was not couched in in any sense of of urgency. But I'm wondering if uh, and again, this is a totally interpretation of staff said, okay, it looks like we have a friction problem. Uh, rather than panic the public, let's bump up the repaving and hope that we get that done and that alleviates the problem and we avoid uh, a major public hue and cry. Uh, that, that's a possible interpretation, and you've sat around that table enough to know that there, there would be a desire to avoid a hue and cry. Well, I understand that uh, for a number of reasons. But on the other hand, I, I would suggest that that's not their call to make. Uh, that, uh, again, they're not supposed to make policy about anything like this. They're supposed to come back to council, and council makes the decisions about policy, and, and they enact whatever council tells them to do. 
So if somebody arbitrarily decided, I'll take matters into my own hands and I'll make the decision, they're stepping way out of the of, of bounds here. And, and I think that's one of the areas of concern that we need to look at if there's going to be some kind of a, re, a review. Yeah, and, and I think I, I can't imagine us not having an independent review at this point. Uh, I've heard not one voice saying we shouldn't do that. Uh, so uh, you've got the mayor uh, wants it. Uh, several councillors have called for it. Uh, the uh, the mayor and Donna Skelly had a meeting yesterday. Uh, she's calling for it. So I I can't imagine that we aren't going to get that report uh, or that review. I guess the question is, you know, it will unfold um, as these things do over a lengthy period of time, and there may be, uh, you know, some impatience to to get at it quickly, but. Um, it looks like we're going to get that review for sure. Well, and I'm not anticipating anything like the Mueller probe down south or anything like that. I, I you know, and I, I know some people may want to see heads roll. I, I just want to get to the truth and find out where this thing stopped, why it stopped, and and you know, obviously we've seen some of the consequences of this. But I mean, it's it's pretty important that we get some clarity on this and maybe a redefinition of who's supposed to do what uh, when it comes to issues of reports and and release of reports. As we found out yesterday, there are a number of other reports about traction on that road that still have not been released to the public, which begs the question, why not? Well, uh, that, that was the other thing that came out of the meeting and the various reports. Is It, it looks like there had been several um, traction studies done on the highway over a period of time. Um, but it's it's going to be a tricky issue um, in some ways about telling staff uh, what they have to release uh, I can see a scenario where counselors just get buried in minutiae and, and very quickly it becomes a case of uh, uh, there's so much stuff here I can't follow any of it. Um, it it's, you know, at the end of the day, you, you, you want to trust people, you, you want to engage people that you trust, and, um, you know, it's going to be interesting to find out what, what was the actual reason for this report not being flagged. I've uh, got to remember our, our staff uh, in public works, we have engineers and, uh, you know, the, the people with um, uh, credentials, and it's possible there could be a, um, a professional disagreement about the findings. Yeah, in, in, in which case I would suggest then the, the, the protocol there is release the report and just say, well, look, this is how we feel about this. Uh, these are the results, but we disagree, and here's why. And have a discussion or even a debate about that, not arbitrarily say, I don't think they should see this because I don't think it's a very good report. That's that's not their call to make. No, absolutely. Uh, but it, it's going to set up an interesting dynamic because, um, you know, the people that were there at the time are not there now. And um, it's, you know, it's, it's going to be interesting to see even if you're going to be able to get people to uh, uh, participate in the review. If it's a judicial review, my understanding is that uh, subpoenas can be issued and testimony is given under oath, so it changes the dynamic a lot. John, yeah, we just yeah. uh, right up against the clock right now. Really appreciate you uh, coming on and talking about this today. We'll stay in touch. My pleasure, Bill. You betcha. John Best, publisher of the Bay Observer. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Listen, over the last couple of weeks, uh, we talked about uh, some leaked documents about possible health care reforms by the Ford government. Uh, we talked to Health Minister Christine Elliott about some of those, and she said, no, this is all about patient care, et cetera. Well, uh, a couple of days ago, a number of health care providers got together and uh, talked about uh, what they are considering this as an omnibus bill, because it actually has very, very many parts to it. Uh, and it's raised some very serious concerns. And in a joint statement released by this group uh, the other day, the advocates and leaders of various organizations 
uh, both this uh, omnibus bill, are arguing this bill is going to create what they call health care chaos. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Natalie Mira, who is the executive director for the Ontario Health Coalition. Uh, Natalie, welcome back. Good to have you on the show today. Uh, thanks for having me. This is one of these situations, and I'm not trying to raise uh, you know, red flags or set off alarm bells here, but it just seems that as the more we find out about this, the more troubling it becomes. Yeah, you know, we've been analyzing this legislation. We've spoken to our lawyers about it. We've held several emergency meetings and conference calls and so on. And the more you get into it, the more you realize this legislation is massive. It's far-reaching. Still, it covers 262 hospital sites, you know, 629 long-term care homes, all of home care, 1,000, 1,500 or more clinics, doctor's offices, ambulance services, air ambulance services, Cancer Care Ontario, the organ donation system, the health quality measurement system for Ontario. It's massive. It's a, an omnibus bill, meaning that it's going to if if it's brought in, if it's you know, if the government forces it through, it will amend or repeal dozens of major pieces of healthcare legislation. And yet all of this has been created in secret. Uh, we wouldn't know about it but for the fact that it was leaked and the plan, according to the government's own documents, is to slam this thing through within just a few weeks, like no public hearings. The plan was to put out the tenders in March, introduce the legislation in February, so the House doesn't sit till February 19th, so at the end of February, and then put out the tenders to start contracting uh, parts of the health system uh, in March. The bill wouldn't even be proclaimed till the summertime, so before it's even finished its legislative process, they were planning to push it into implementation. In our view, the plan here is to slam this thing through before Ontarians even catch up to what the government's real agenda is with this legislation. Well, the problem really with that, Natalie, terrible. is it's awfully hard to educate yourself about something when you don't have the facts in front of you. I mean, yeah. like you say, this is this is done behind closed doors. There's been no public debate or discussion about this. Uh, when parts of this were released a couple of weeks ago, as you recall... I asked the minister about this, Minister Elliott, about this, and she says, no, 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 that's not the bill. That was just an old, old draft. That's really not relevant. But the, the document that you and others have laid eyes on now indicates that that's very much what the document is. It was a part of it, but it is part of, it is the, uh, the document. When it, it came to a number of the initiatives, especially one of the more troubling ones that you and I talked about a couple of weeks ago is the uh, formation of this, what they call, super agency. Exactly, yeah. And, you know, the minister... I think it's been extremely misleading to the public because not only did she talk about the bill as though, you know, it was created by the civil service and they're just floating an idea. Well, when actually the documents show that cabinet, that's all the ministers of the government and the health minister had actually approved this direction, created the, the, the holding corporation for the super agency that you're talking about. That's going to be, the super bureaucracy that takes over all of that healthcare, you know, um, and then con starts contracting and privatizing services. You know, it had been signed, the documents have been signed by the health minister herself, the orders in council. The, the plan had gone to cabinet. You know, I find that very disingenuous and very troubling. And so, yes, you're right. There's a super agency. Uh, that's taking over all of this stuff. It's going to be a major super bureaucracy, you know, in, in our view. And it has extraordinary powers to order 
bill, not just regular mergers, but mega mergers. In the bill, they have to find mergers uh, to make in the health system, and they have to take two major services or more and merge them. That's what the bill requires, and it has extraordinary powers to order the privatization of the health system. Some of the things that are going to be impacted by this, some of the services and agencies that are going to be impacted, you talked about a couple of them already. Uh, Orange Air Ambulance uh, is is one of them. Uh, the one that raised an awful lot of eyebrows with a lot of folks in Nailu is Cancer Care Ontario. That's a very efficient system and a very effective system. And it just seems as if, well, you're on the chopping block because everything else is on the chopping block. So this it seems to be run by political principle as opposed to pragmatism. Yeah, I don't know why they would do this because Ontario has an excellent world-class cancer treatment system. I mean, if anything, we need more of it, but it certainly does not need to be put at risk by being slammed in with all of the the local health integration networks and everything else in this super agency. I mean, it really, all kinds of people have come out warning against this because it endangers Cancer Care Ontario, and I think people have are absolutely right to do that. It just seems, from what I've seen of this anyway, and we have to wait, I guess, until, as you say, the 19th when they go back to work and the legislature will actually see this bill, but by then uh, the wheels have already started. This is a majority government, so they just have to go first, second, third reading, uh, bingo, bango, and it can it can become law, as you said, by the, the time these guys rise for their summer break, this thing could actually be enacted. But it seems as if the driving force behind a lot of the things that we've seen in in this bill is cost-saving, not delivering a better health care system. Yeah, and you know what's outrageous about this? Like, Bill, you'll remember the, remember the hospital restructuring under the Harris government? Oh, yeah. So that's when all the hospitals were merged and so on, all the Hamilton hospitals and all the Niagara hospitals and so on. And it's been devastating, right? Just the smaller, medium-sized hospitals, the community hospitals. Ever since then, we've had to fight tooth and nail to save hospitals. And we have in Hamilton and Niagara and so on. But it has taken, you know, year after year, it's put a number of the hospital sites, what used to be local community hospitals, standalone hospitals themselves, at risk of closure. That restructuring was supposed to cost, the, the uh, Harris government intended to save a billion dollars, right? That was the plan. According to the provincial auditor, in the end, they saved $800 million, but they spent $3.9 billion. That was for the mergers and amalgamations and closures of the hospitals to lay off all those nurses. Remember the thousands of nurses that they laid off to move services around. They had to build new buildings, shut other buildings down, etc. Cost literally billions of dollars. This new plan is like that restructuring on steroids. And that's what we were warning about yesterday in our joint statement. We were saying, look at what the last round cost. That money was never recouped for the health system and actually just took billions of money away from care for restructuring. And it led to 10 years of chaos in the healthcare system. Imagine this bill, which is for mega mergers. It's like mergers, but on a much bigger scale, closures, transfers of service. You know, this will lead to billions of dollars wasted, real instability, privatization of health care. Nobody in Ontario voted for this. Uh, by the way, we should, I, I want to clear something up here. Uh, 
because you and I have had a number of conversations about this over the last little while, Natalie. I, I don't think there's anybody, even in your group, that's suggesting we don't need to do anything with the health care system. It's fine the way it is. Uh, there are some things that need to be addressed and some things that possibly could be reformed about this. But the I would think the practical way to do that is to sit down with the, the health care providers, the frontline people, and say, tell us what your, your concerns are. Tell us what your problems is. And take that into consideration when you develop policies to try to make some of these changes instead of doing it behind closed doors at a cabinet meeting. Absolutely. We agree. I mean, we put out a platform of reforms that would actually cut unnecessary you know, administration and so on and actually get money, more money to the front lines of care. We also have been calling for uh, restoring services, you know, reopening closed hospital beds and emergency departments and operating rooms to restore capacity. That's what Ontario needs. We don't need another experiment in restructuring and, you know, cutting services and privatizing services to hand them off to you know, your private for-profit corporate friends. This is about actually improving health care for Ontarians. And unfortunately, the plan as it's written is will be, I think, devastating. Um, and it certainly will be a political problem, a major political problem for the Ford government. So we're urging them to rethink it. And actually, for your listeners, this is the last week that the MPPs are back in their writings before the legislature reconvenes. If there's one thing that you do that would be helpful right now, it would be email your MPP and CC in Doug Ford, copy in Doug Ford, and tell him that you don't want to see this omnibus health care bill that they've that's been leaked. It's just that you you know that you don't want to see this. You don't want to see mega mergers, and you absolutely don't want to see the privatization of health care. It would be extremely helpful if thousands of people contacted their MPPs this week and let them know. Well, because there's, I think, a troubling theme here that seems to be running through some of the announcements that the Ford government has made over the last six or seven months, uh, and that is lack of public consultation uh, with a number of issues. And uh, this is the latest example of that, but of course we saw this with the reforms he announced a couple of weeks ago about, uh, for instance, tuition uh, and, and some of those changes that were going on. I talked to a number of student groups here. I talked to the university associations. I talked to to the uh, to the professors and and the teachers of these. Said none of the, not, nobody talked to us about this. I don't know where he's getting his ideas from. Uh, and we're getting the same thing once again here, where it seems as if nobody in that industry is being consulted at all, uh, and they're relying on their own ideas and simply saying, you know, well, this is the way we're going to do this, which begs a number of questions. Like I said earlier, one of them about what's your goal here? Is it simply to save money? Because uh, it doesn't seem to be a collaborative event. This is hardly the sort of reaction you'd want to see from a government that says they are, quote-unquote, for the people. Absolutely. It actually appears that they kept it secret on purpose in order to be able to sort of slam it through before the public caught up with their agenda. And, you know, I do think that when you consult about policy with only a very narrow group of insiders, you know, and we think this is what's happened here because none none of our member groups, the doctors, the nurses, the patient groups, the advocates, the seniors groups, no one has been consulted, not one. So no consultation has happened. So it's a bunch of insiders, and these are the same people who've restructured health care to their own benefit, right? The, the big hospital CEOs, the empire builders that have, you know, made hundreds of thousands of dollars in increase in salaries out of 
this type of restructuring, the consulting companies, the private uh, care companies and so on, but not the people of Ontario, not the doctors and nurses as Doug Ford promised to consult. That hasn't happened. And in, you know, and so we've got a bad piece of legislation that is going to benefit, you know, the same people who've benefited from the last couple of rounds of restructuring at the expense of local health care services for people. So where do we go? What do we do about this? Well, I mean, we're trying to stop it. And I think that there is a huge blowback happening. I mean, the government is, is under pressure around this bill, and they have actually moved back on some things that have proven deeply unpopular. So really, I mean, if people are concerned, I hope they're concerned about the future of health care. I know, I know that people care about it. it. It's time to actually act, and people can help. But, you know, you can send an email to your MPP, CC and Doug Ford for sure, or the health minister or both. Health minister is Christine Elliott. But, I mean, everyone knows Doug Ford's name. So copy in Doug Ford and make sure that they hear from as many people as possible. Talk to your neighbors and friends. This week we have to pour on the pressure so that we can slow this thing down or stop it and make sure that proper public consultation happens. And I think a clear message is, we don't like the healthcare omnibus bill, you know, no mega mergers, no healthcare privatization, something like that. Just very simple, very clear. Well, I've talked about a number of the shortcomings over the years uh, from the previous government. I mentioned the uh, you know, orange ambulance situation. Uh, we talked about uh, a number of different things that, uh, that that government initiated when it came to healthcare, and and there were problems with it. But the problems invariably, as as we recall. Uh, had to do with with poor administration. It wasn't the the, the the delivery of the care itself that was at play here, and 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 we, you know, I think we issued red flags about that. You know, there were people that were running amok and wasting taxpayer money and pocketing taxpayers' money in some cases, uh, and that sullied the whole idea that people had about health care. But this is this is a monstrous thing and a, and a very expensive enterprise, of course, for any government, Natalie. Uh, Forty-seven cents, I think it is, of every dollar that uh, that we give to the provincial government is going towards health care. Uh, we need to spend it wisely. But that doesn't mean that, okay, well, let's just slap something down on paper and that's our new health care policy. Uh, if there are things to be fixed here, that's going to take some time, some public consultation, and maybe some thought before you ar- just arbitrarily say, here's the way we're going to go. Oh, yeah, I completely agree. And actually, health care spending, I call it funding because it's a service for all of us, but it's been declining for years, years and years and years. We're actually down to 42 cents per dollar. And we actually have among the lowest healthcare funding in the country. But there's a long way. We could go some ways to increase funding to actually improve services. And I think people would want that, but they want to see it actually improve services. And, you know, this, unfortunately, this bill is not about reopening closed hospital beds and, you know, restoring services to people. It's about restructuring no mega mergers, as I'm saying. It's about transferring a service from place to place and closing down services and so on. It's a it's a it's a different animal entirely. Well, I, I like to connect the dots when we talk about this, and, and because there are some other things that are going to be impacted by this. And you know, there was some discussion some months ago about, for instance, uh, refining or some of the real or the uh, insurance policies. Uh, which is actually going to have a, a negative impact on people's coverage th- for things like rehab, et cetera, uh, which is going to put more pressure on the healthcare system. And now they're talking about refining the healthcare system. In other words, reducing the money that's going to be put into this. Uh, and, and there's no direction and no discussion here about how they're going to try to impact some of the problems. I mean, they made a, a an idle promise, okay, they want to reduce wait times. Every government for the last 30 years has said they're going to reduce wait times, and nobody's had much success doing it. 
But you don't do that by cutting services. You do that by allocating money to things like long-term care beds and, and others and home care and things of that nature. And I don't hear that discussion from this government. No, that's right. I mean, Ontario, listen, we have one in nine hospital patients that is discharged from hospital ends up back in hospital within 30 days with complications from whatever they were in hospital for. One in nine, the highest hospital readmission rate in the country. Imagine the money we would save and the health that we would save if people actually just weren't pushed out too sick and too early before they had recovered sufficiently to, you know, not end up back in hospital with more complicated issues. Imagine, you know, if people weren't waiting at home and getting hurt and burning themselves and, you know, all of those things that happen with people who have Alzheimer's who, um, you know, are at home and they've, they've just progressed too far for their family to be able to reasonably take care of them. Imagine if they had adequate care, how many falls we, we could prevent that, you know, lead to deterioration and often the end of life for very elderly and frail people. You know, these things can be done and they should be done and in fact bill they're done in every other province i mean we every other province funds its health care system better every other province has more hospital beds i mean there are things that we could do to improve care without question in ontario and we really believe that this is entirely the wrong direction the government just needs to go back to you know the blackboard you know the writing table what's the <laughs> what's the metaphor <laughs> on this and just well, it'll be the iPad now. <laughs> Natalie, we'll stay in touch as uh, as uh, we go forward on this. Like you say, next week those guys go back to work, and uh, here's hoping they're going to get an earful from the public about what they'd like to see happen. Thanks for the time today. Thank you so much for having me. It's a really important issue, so thank you. It Bill. certainly is. Okay, Natalie. Natalie Mayor, Executive Director of the Ontario Health Coalition. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Right now, though, I want to talk about what's going on in Ottawa. This is a, technically a dark week. Um, MPs are home now. The, the Commons resumes next week. But it is uh, no less busy up there now, and it has to, a lot to do, of course, with the NSC Lavalin uh, situation and the revelation in the Globe and Mail a week or so ago now uh, that their sources tell them that uh, they allege that the, somebody in the PMO uh, put pressure on then a Justice Minister and Attorney General uh, to get involved in the SNC-Lavalin situation. Of course, these guys are going to court right now and probably going to be convicted because of what's gone on. Uh, not too long after that, of course, the minister was demoted, uh, and uh, sh- many people feel that it was because uh, she balked at uh, the request from whoever it was to do this. Now, this is all speculative, of course, because she's not talking. Uh, the prime minister is saying there's nothing to see here, but we're not so sure how the, the minister, the, uh, the ex-attorney general, feels about this. So where is this going to go? Uh, there's a lot of different voices involved in the debate up in Ottawa right now, from opposition leaders to uh, MPs to the Just- Justice Committee on the Commons. And, uh, well, obviously we as the, the public are concerned about what's happening here, too. There's serious charges. Joining us to talk about this is Christopher Waddell, professor in the School of Journalism and Communication at Carleton University, an expert in political journalism. Professor, thank you for the time. Good to have you with us today. Hi, Bill. Uh, I'm, I, this is so many twists and turns in this thing. This has kind of developed into a he said, she's not talking situation. It's, it's awfully hard to try to get some clarity on this. Well, I think you're right. And as, as more comes out or as people put together more pieces of the information, it becomes even more difficult to follow exactly what's going on. In part, that's because 
Well, there's a couple of different um, important things to know. SNC-Lavalin is a large global company that does engineering work and uh, construction work and all those sorts of things. Works in many comp- countries around the world. It's very well known in Quebec. It's one of the one of the what you might describe as a, a champion of the Quebec economy. Uh, has been around for a very long time. Um, so everybody knows about the importance of SNC-Lavalin, and it's a big company. Uh, we also know that they've been facing these charges for quite a while, which involves, in this one case, involves bribing officials in Libya between 2001 and 2011. Um, SNC-Lavalin has been very public about, the, about not wanting to face a trial in this situation because if they face a trial and are convicted, they could be banned from federal government contracts in Canada alone for up to 10 years. And at the moment, there's one calculation that's been done that says they're working on about $68 million worth of projects for the federal government, which can involve buildings or other sorts of things and, and all that sort of stuff. So, so SNC and, and the federal government changed the laws in 2018 to allow for basically an out-of-court settlement with a company when it faces a situation like this that would, uh, in the company's case, um, they would pay a fine. Um, they might admit to some wrongdoing, but they would not be charged criminally and they would not be convicted criminally, which means they would avoid this potential um, 10-year ban on, uh, on, um, on, on their business. And that's important for them to avoid it because they argue that if this happens, um, they could go out of business. It would cost them uh, a lot of money, and who knows if the company would survive or not. So all the details about this, and, and SNC-Lavalin has been engaged in a lobbying campaign about this bill, about this issue for quite a while, seeing ministers, seeing government officials. They've done newspaper advertising. So the whole the, the case and the story is all quite well known. So so it's not as if this was a, was a secret. So it becomes more and more difficult when people aren't talking to actually know what, if anything, happened because it's not, it wouldn't be at all a surprise that the justice minister might be speaking to people about this issue as well, because it's a very contentious one, and one that, uh, and one that certainly would have been on everybody's radar. And but and that's where we get into this idea of of splitting hairs. Before we get into that, I want to go back to the legislation you were talking about. Sure. Uh, because even some people are pointing to that and say, "Aha, that's the government showing favoritism uh, uh, towards SNC Lavalin." Uh, but this is actually legislation that's very similar to something that was passed in the UK a couple of years ago. And and on the surface, Christopher, it it's, it does make sense. It's saying, "Look, at, employees and shareholders should not have to suffer because of of something stupid done by, for instance, a board of directors, or the case might be." Uh, and and we, to your point about if Lavalin is convicted, uh, that's going to be catastrophic for the Quebec economy. We could be talking about thousands of job loss, and who knows what's going to happen with shareholders are concerned. So it's no no, I don't uh, surprise at all. I would think that that people in the, in the government are talking about this because of the serious implications that could happen here. Right, and and the issue becomes, uh, and that that on some levels, totally independent, Bill, of, of the question of who talked to who in the government about this. There's the bigger question, I think, which is which you're kind of touching upon, which is legislation was passed that uh, that would ban companies that looks tough and would ban companies if they're if they're convicted of corruption or if they're convicted of bribery or other practices. But the issue is, and the case Lavalin is making, is that um, since this happened. They've changed their management. They've changed their board of directors. They've changed everybody. They've they've changed their corporate culture. Uh, they say and 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 so why should ten years after something happened we be forced to pay a price because the people who are there at the moment are no longer the people who may have been involved in this situation? The, basically, uh, reduced it to really simple terms. 
the argument becomes an argument about well, are companies too big to too big to actually fail or too big to risk um, to risk this sort of punishment that might lead to failure? Uh, the, 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 so on one level, since it takes so long, this was a this one case. Although SNC Lavalin has also been involved in others as well, which raises questions about what the corporate culture was at certain periods of time. But but this one case happened between 2001 2011. It's now eight or nine years later that we're actually coming to, to prosecute it, in part because it takes time to put all this information together. Courts don't necessarily work, work as speedily as we might sometimes wish. And, uh, and, and so um, the question, the, the bigger question lying behind this is, it's great to pass legislation that looks tough that says you're going to actually punish people if these in, they engage in these practices. But if you're never going to be able to convict them because people make arguments like this, is the law really, what's the value of the law? Exactly. And, and the question as I see it, and just as we get little tidbits of information about this, uh, it doesn't seem to be so much that, hey, did they talk about this? I think that's a foregone conclusion. Of course they did. It's what was said and to whom and what was the intent of the conversation. And, and, and even beyond that, what makes it even more um, nebulous is does anything need to be said? Um, as I said, it's not really... First of all, I'm sure the prime minister wouldn't have been involved directly um, on on this, and would certainly have not. It would be very surprising if he would put himself in that sort of situation. He has lots of people. If if a message wants to be delivered to someone, or if the prime minister wants a message delivered to someone, uh, there are people who can do it that ensure that it doesn't look like the prime minister was directly involved. And there are people um, on staff that are like that. I mean, Nad- Nigel White was that guy for Stephen Harper. Gerald Butt seems to be that guy in the PMO now. Well, in some cases, yes, or it may be someone else. We don't really know. Don't yeah. know enough of, of who the people are inside. So there's ways, if you want to deliver the message like that, there are ways to deliver that message. Um, so, but, but I don't even know that you really need to deliver that message because everybody's aware of the company. Everyone is aware of the lobbying issues. And, and on the other side of it, I mean, SNC-Lavalin's also been involved in other activities in Canada that were problematic, involved, including bid rigging in the Montreal hospital case, and, and for which someone has pleaded guilty. And there's been other cases as well. So there's, there are good questions to ask about, um, is this a case of, of, as the old adage goes, a few bad apples, or is there a more serious corporate culture problem within the company? And, and, and the, the current management of the company would say, well, even if there was, we've cleaned all that up because we're new people who are here now. So, so uh, there's lots of issues on lots of levels. And sometimes you don't have to say very much. You don't have to say anything because everyone understands what the issues are. So that's where it all becomes pretty. And then, of course, uh, the people making the allegations, or the people making the assertions quoted by the Globe are, of course, anonymous sources, people who don't want to have their name associated with it. And above and beyond all that, there's the lingering question of why... Um, Miss um, Wilson-Raybould was actually moved from the justice portfolio as people perceived she was doing a good job, and that's and she seemed to be very unhappy at the time she, the cabinet shuffle occurred that she was taken out of that position. So of course that all fuels a search for what could have been the reason or rationale and. This is potentially one, but we don't know enough yet to know if it really is or not. But I want to connect a couple of dots here. And, and the day that she was well, demoted, let's use that phrase, mm-hmm. uh, down to the Veterans Affairs portfolio, uh, in an unusual move, as, as we recall, Christopher, she issued a statement and talked about the great work that she did and how she had yep. uh, uh, superseded just about every goal. But she also talked about uh, being beyond reproach and, and all this sort of stuff. And, uh, and a lot of people were thinking at that time, well, where's this even coming from? But in light of these allegations... 
Now you wonder if she was actually hinting at maybe one of the reasons why she got the demotion in the first place. That's possible, although I could make, uh, if I wanted to, I could make a case that, you know, Veterans Affairs has been a hugely problematic issue for the Conservative government previously and, oh, yeah. and, for, and for this government as well, in terms of the commitments the Liberals made in opposition about what they would be prepared to do for veterans, particularly um, people who served during Afghanistan and, 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 uh, and in, the, uh, in our quote-unquote peacekeeping missions in Kosovo and places like that in the 1990s. So on some levels, putting a, competent, a more competent person there who could maybe clean that up and solve some of those problems before an election might not be might not be a bad thing for the Liberals to do. But, um, but um, her statement was not something that a minister usually um, releases when they're leaving a portfolio. So that, as you say, raised some, uh, raised some concerns as well. Well, as if, if these accusations had never surfaced, I mean, just look at the dynamic there. You're absolutely right. Okay, that's a tough portfolio. You're a very good minister. You handle that. I'm going to replace you with a guy who's a Quebec minister, a very capable uh, jurist, uh, Lametti. Uh, and boy, we need help in Quebec, too, with that collection coming up. So it could have been looked at as a win-win, but it's all, uh, you know, uh, under a black cloud now because of these accusations from the Globe and Mail. And I, and I guess the question we're all asking now is, are we ever going to get the real story here? Because uh, she is bound by, by client-attorney privilege, uh, plus, of course, she's got cabinet uh, privileges. Uh, so she, I don't know that she's ever going to talk about a situation like this. I'm not so sure anybody's going to. Well, there is a Commons Committee that's going to be talking on Wednesday, um, having a meeting to decide whether they want to try and do an investigation and call people or not. Now, the Liberals, um, as the majority government, they have the uh, they would have the majority on that committee. So, if there's a motion that goes before the committee saying they would like to hold an inquiry or some sort of investigation, the Liberals uh, cumulatively could vote that down if they wanted to. Although the chair who's um, Anthony Housefeather, a Montreal MP, has indicated he's prepared to listen to the, to the debate and discussion about whether the committee should actually do anything. So there creates some potential that if the committee were to hold hearings, we may find out more about it. But, but um, you go back to your original point, which for the most people, this quickly becomes a question of he said, she said, or he said, she didn't say, or whatever it might be. Yeah. And... and um, and in a lot of these circumstances, if in fact anything did happen, um, in many of these circumstances, the people engaged are smart enough to ensure that it's hard to track down anyway. Which is uh, one of the reasons <laughs> if, why... If you know what I mean. They just, just stuff doesn't get... No one's got to write memos saying I was... You know, I met with with person X, and person X instructed me to do Y. Um, that's not going to happen. Well, I, I guess it, it's rather. You know, the question is, were they instructive about what they've learned in the past? We just talked about Harper and Nigel White with the, the Senate expense scandal a couple of years ago, right? Uh, and there was a paper trail there. Sadly, that uh, for Nigel White anyway, it was sadly uh, and checks, so you could actually find who who wrote a check. Exactly, but this, like these these are conversations, and uh, there's yeah. been no indication in the Globe and Mail and their reporting so far, anyway, that there is a paper trail. Yeah. So. Uh, you're right. I mean, there's, there's a lot of smoke here so far. And, and then you layer on top of that the other, the other whole layer, which is that, of course, with an election coming up in October, um, the opposition parties, particularly the Conservatives, think, and the New Democrats as well, think this is a glorious opportunity to, to raise questions about the government's competence or the government's um, ethics, and all of which can play into an election campaign too. But, but what was noted here as well, and has been noted, is that I believe SNC-Lavalin in its... In its uh, in its lobbying efforts to try to ensure that 
um, but it didn't face actual prosecution, uh, visited, uh, met with um, um, Andrew Scheer, the leader of the opposition as well. So it, the company is doing as much as it can in terms of lobbying, and it's got some very good people as lobbyists, both lib- a liberal and a former liberal, uh, uh, former liberal assistant to Jean Chrétien, and for the conservatives, uh, uh, someone who worked in the Mulroney government. So they've been doing the rounds, and they've been working hard on this as well. So, so um, it's it isn't the case of only one side being um, involved here. There's going to be if if it all unfolds, I think we're going to see. Um, lots of people having some engagement, and but I doubt that we're ever going to see exactly what happened. Well, given the uh, the short uh, news cycle that they usually have up on Parliament Hill, uh, you know, and they get back to work next week, it's a matter of whether or not the store is going to have legs. I guess time will tell. Christopher, it's always a pleasure. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks very much, Phil. Take care, Christopher Waddell, yep. of course, professor in the School of Journalism and Communication up at Carleton University. The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from nine to noon on nine hundred CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.